prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Rafe Vines embraces his inner action hero in The King's Man. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz, and welcome to another edition, and yes, the last edition of Happy, Sad, Confused, just for the year. Calm down. Did I scare you for a second? Don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. But yes, this is the last podcast of 2021 for Happy, Sad, Confused. And it's been another hell of a year, guys. We made it. We're in it together. We're still here. We're still standing. We're still sitting. We're still reclining. Wherever, However you are, you're listening. I'm talking, so we're okay. Um, thank you, as always, for tuning into Happy, Sad, Confused and um, hopefully enjoying my... Sometimes silly, sometimes substantive, sometimes a little bit of both conversations with the best filmmakers and actors on the planet. That certainly fits the bill for today's guest, Mr. Rafe Vines. He has, by the way, been a guest on the podcast before, probably about five years ago. So if you want to go back into the archives, check that out. Or just go right to this conversation, because this is a bit of another career chat with Rafe. Um, he, of course... Has done. I mean, how do how do you sum up what Ray Fiennes has been in? I, the early works, including Schindler's List and The English Patient, in recent years, the Harry Potter films, the James Bond films, and now uh, center stage in his own action film, The King's Man, from Matthew Vaughn, a filmmaker I greatly enjoy. Uh, of course, The King's Men. Uh, films, not King's Man, the King's Men films with Taron Edgerton and Colin Firth, um, very successful. And now this is a prequel. This is set in World War I, um, and yes, does connect to those other stories, but is very much its own thing. A different vibe in this film, and I and I dug the vibe. It's It's got some of that bravura action, but it's also a bit of just like a World War I action thriller. Um, and yes, Ray Fiennes helps class it up a little bit, <laughs> and he is he is supported in his endeavors by a great ensemble, including Gemma Arterton, Harris Dickinson, Jaiman Onsu, Reese Ifans, who is just going for it, guys. Um, so this was a, a great chat with a um, uh, an actor I just I, I just couldn't have more admiration for. He's just always fantastic. Some great stuff in here about his participation in the Harry Potter films, of course, playing Voldemort. Am I allowed to say Voldemort? I just did. Oh, well. Uh, and also some really interesting stuff about his participation in the James Bond films. He, of course, plays M in the Daniel Craig era, the last few films. And uh, he kind of he talks a bit about a way that uh, the character of M was going to go, um, but that he fought fought against. So stay tuned for that. That that I found that really interesting. My ears perked up when he talked about that. Um, so yeah, a lot in this conversation. Um, on a broader level, as we look back to 2021, as we take stock of it all, I just want to thank you guys, as always, for being along for the ride. If you're new to Happy, Sad, Confused, welcome. Um, there's nearly 400 episodes in the archives waiting for you, all free. Um, and I like to think of it as a really eclectic, fascinating mix of some of the most uh, amazing actors and filmmakers and writers and comedians of our times. So if you have some downtime in this holiday season, go go look up your favorite actor or filmmaker. They very well might be in the archives. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, I, I've said it in weeks past. I'll say it again. We're in a really cool part of the year where there's so much good stuff out there. I'm just looking at the December schedule, guys, of like what's recently come out. Um, on the film side, West Side Story, I positively adore 
adored. I can't wait to see it again. Spider-Man No Way Home. I'm not going to spoil it just yet. I still want to give folks some time on that one, but uh, still a lot to talk about. And I don't want to jinx it, but there may be a podcast in our future that really directly... um, (laughs) <laughs> How do I say this? What do I say? That directly uh, addresses some of the plot developments in the film. Did I just jinx it? I probably did, but but stay tuned. Um, what else? Uh, other good films out there. Well, The King's Man. There's Matrix Resurrections. That's on HBO Max. Um, there's The Lost Daughter, I think, is dropping on Netflix pretty soon. If you, if, if you haven't heard about this one, this is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directing debut with Olivia Coleman and Dakota Johnson. Really impressed by that one being the Ricardos from Aaron Sorkin, um, Pedro Almodovar's film Parallel Mothers, Don't Look Up on Netflix. Um, there is a lot out there. So, And that's just the films, guys. In the TV side, there's Station Eleven, there's MacGruber, there's The Witcher. Uh, there's something for everybody out there. Um, anyway, I guess we should just toss to, to this last great conversation of 2021, but I do want to thank you guys for listening as always and supporting Happy Sad Confused for making our recent benefit with Tom Hiddleston such a huge success. Um, and if you want to check out more stuff, if you want to see video versions of the podcast, if you want to see Game Night, which is our uh, frequent, uh, very loose, very fun um, uh game version of Happy, Sad, Confused with huge movie and TV stars, go over to the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash happy, sad, confused. I think you guys will will dig it. If you enjoyed that podcast, you'll probably enjoy what we're doing over at the Patreon page. Um, Okay, that's enough of me rambling for 2021. I'm going to rest up for what's sure to be hopefully another big, exciting, and hopefully healthy year for all of us, 2022, around the corner. In the meantime, though, enjoy this conversation with one of the classiest guests ever to be on Happy, Sad, Confused. Just his his diction, his inflections, his voice, his timber. It's all class. Here's me and Mr. Rafe Fonz. Congratulations on the new film. Uh, this is This is one of those things where I, you know, you hear Matthew Vaughn, you hear Ray Fines, and my mind as a lover of both of your works boggles at like, what is that combination going to look like? And the, the answer is, it works. It's fantastic. Good. Um, <laughs> so congratulations all around. Um, we'll get to the King's Man in a second, but first, I, just for some context, and because you've spent such so much of your life in the theater, and I know you're you're working in the theater right now outside of doing some press uh, for this yeah. film, um, give me a sense of the last year, I mean, I know your production with David Hare was one of the first productions, I think, back home uh, of that scale. Yes, that was that yeah. was a monologue David Hare wrote about having, he had COVID in April, March of 2020. And he wrote about it in the form of a monologue, also having a go at our government's pretty inadequate response at the time to the arrival of COVID in the UK. Uh, and it's quite, it was quite visceral and angry and funny. And I think audiences appreciated this kind of cathartic um, speaking of frustrations and bewilderment and the description of, the, of having the illness. Was and it then this year, um, sorry, I, I, sorry? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt that, sir, yeah. No, I mean, now I'm just doing something else. I'm doing this um, production of a, of a poem by T.S. Eliot called The Four Quartets, which some people may know. It's a beautiful, complex poem, which 
we put on in the summer. And we I toured it through different regional cities in the UK, and now it's coming towards the end of a short run in London. Really, um, the David Hare production, um, you mentioned catharsis for the audience. Was it also catharsis for you? I mean, we were all going through tra collective trauma in the last year and a half. It must have been a fascinating experience for you to kind of deliver that um, emotion of David's on stage night after night. Yeah, it was it was it was strong stuff. I mean, he didn't pull any punches about what he felt about our government's handling, and I I agreed with the principle of where his anger was coming from. Um, and he's such an electric writer. I mean, it was it was strong stuff, um, but also touching about being vulnerable to the symptoms of the illness. Um, and it was one of the first productions, if not the first production back after the first lockdown in London. Right. Uh, at the Bridge Theatre. But it was also in sync with other monologues, um, some by Alan Bennett. Um, so the Bridge came back, the Bridge Theatre came back with a sequences, a series of monologues. But, the, but I, think, I think that Beat the Devil was the newest of them. I mean, your name is synonymous with great theater the last uh, couple decades, sir. I mean, did you feel a almost a responsibility, a compulsion to be one of the first out of the gate to bring theater back? It wasn't really. It didn't. It didn't. I mean, the beat, the beat, the devil didn't come from me. I mean, weirdly, I've been planning a production with the bridge, um, actually, about a great American figure, Robert Moses, the New York right. City planner. But that's coming up next year. But um, because of what COVID was doing, David, David wrote this piece and Nick Heitner, the director and artistic director of The Bridge said, Rafe, would you be interested in doing it? So I was excited to do it. It was, it was just alive at the time. I don't know whether it, and we filmed it too, actually, we, we recorded it. Right. Um, I don't know if it would be something to redo again because it was so of the moment and it was only, it was just okay. It was still, it still felt a little bit late because it was so hot off the press and, and it's what he was saying. But no, I mean, you know, it was, it was exciting because like everyone, we didn't know what was happening in the theatre particularly. We didn't know where, how that was going to come back. And a lot of West End theatres were suffering and closing and, a lot of commercial producers were very uncertain about the future of the theatre. So, uh, I mean, I think, I think that, that, that Nick Heitner, who, who ran the National Theatre for a long time, is a great visionary about where theatre can go. And he's also got a great overview of all kinds of theatre, you know, all from, you know, comedy, popular entertainment to some more, maybe more niche kinds of playwriting, but he's just, because he's run the National Theatre, he comes with a great breadth of awareness about what audience would like, the, the, this, the, sort of the menu of what an audience can, can hope to see. What, was the early ambition to do both theatre and film when you were starting out was, you did so much of your early work primarily on the stage. Was film part of the dream or was that an unexpected no, evolution? Film, no, film theatre was what I, I mean, I grew up, listening to recordings of actors like Laurence Olivier and my mum taking me to the theatre. And, and that was the theatre was the thing. I think I just thought that was my dream. And the film just felt so far away, like a remote thing that theatre was, you know, I was living in London as an art student. Theatre was on my doorstep, but the world of film just felt kind of Im impossible. Uh, so, yeah, when I went to drama school and then I was happy to get 
invited to join the National Theatre then after that Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, so yeah, no, theatre was the thing. But once I was invited to be in films, I got, you know, then I saw what, what films can do and how actors can communicate very differently in films than the theatre. And it's, fa it's, fasc it's fascinating and great. It's great to be able to, I'm lucky that I can go between the two. Because um, I think you can take from one for the other, you know, the sort of interior shifts that the camera likes to see in the human face that probably wouldn't transmit on a stage. But you can bring to bear that same interior life on stage because actually, if you're only projecting and gesticulating in a theatrical way, it becomes just a, a mask. Right. So, you know, I think the film, the, the truth that film likes is absolutely a requirement for the theatre, except the theatre audiences in the theatre, there's a different vocal and gestural language, which also is exciting to, to, to manage, to use to, as, a, as a way of expression. And not to mention, you know, bringing us to the film you're promoting today, The King's Man. Uh, you can say a lot of things about it. It would not work on the stage. This is something designed for cinema. Yeah. Um, and as I alluded to at the outset, I'm a big fan of Matthew Vaughn, and I, I'm sure you are as well. Uh, and I think it's probably for some of the same reasons. This is a man who, in this era of blockbusters and, you know, giant, giant, giant action films, and I've certainly seen more than my share, there are very few filmmakers that can bring a life, a vitality, a, a singular vision to them uh, outside of Matthew. Um, yeah. were, you, were you, I mean, do you track directors? Were you much aware of Matthew's work prior to this? Uh, not much. I'd seen, I, I had seen um, The First Kingsman and enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Um, and then I caught up with stuff that I hadn't seen, like Kick-Ass, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, Kick-Ass, uh, Layer Cake. I mean, they're all, they're all, all fantastic. Yeah. yeah. No, I think I was completely taken aback by Matthew's kind of mix of, in-your-face action with totally unpredictable storytelling that's exciting. You just don't know where it's going to go. And that was the same on the page when you read the, this Kingsman prequel. Um, and Matthew engaged with me in a very genuine way. Um, he really wanted my input. Uh, he genuinely wanted to have ideas. And, you know, I mean, we discussed you know, one or two quite extreme scenes uh, that around the depictions of the Russian Tsar, which, which were <laughs> not something I can describe on a public TV channel, <laughs> but they were, they were, I don't, they didn't make the movie, but they were, but I mean, when you read it, it was like, oh my God, he's really. <laughs> he likes shock but, value but, and he somehow the, makes it worse though. But, yeah. but, but the, yes, and that's right. And the sort of, although it, what I read originally wasn't in the film, but the shock value is still there, I think, in the film. Oh, absolutely. And a surprise it, element. And also the humor, you don't know, you're sort of taken aback by, oh my God, this is happening. I can't, and I never saw this coming. Well, we always talk, you know, in these kind of conversations about finding the right tone in a film. And a film like this is, is a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge to find that tone that can shift between, I mean, the, the, I'm sure part of the, also the ingredients for you as an actor approaching it is this, this character from the start is, is just dealing with, real human trauma and loss yeah. like this is like yes this is in some ways you might think of this as a frivolous fun kind of four quadrant action movie but the bones of it the for you as an actor yeah. there's a lot to chew on and that must be yeah. a relief so that, for you. well i well i that's that was why the part was attractive 
because there was a lot to chew on in terms of his past and what he's dealing with. And I mean, I was aware that Matthew was sort of, it was a high stakes proposal because he was dealing with family trauma, high profile, high intensity, humorous action sequences with the horrors of the First World War and the trenches, which are very real and still resonate. Certainly in the UK, the First World War is still sits as a painful historical thing. So how is he going to bring all these things together and not veer into something which felt like a bit in bad taste? Sure. Um, but I just thought, well, he's smart and he's, he's, he knows the danger areas. After talking to him, he, I was aware that he knew the pitfalls. But I just thought, this is a great part. There's a great arc. And uh, I just thought I must just play the guy, certainly for the first two thirds, completely straight, where the humor is, is in situations, there are other characters that bring to bear so humorous um, or kind of satirical element. And the Duke of Oxford is meant to be the straight center um, the of the story. And the reluctant hero, nothing better than a reluctant hero. A reluctant hero, a reluctant hero, that's a good, that's right, yeah. <laughs> So there's also, I mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but there's a certain irony that this is perhaps your most physically taxing role, I would imagine, at least in some time. Like, I mean, in your 50s, you're getting to do the action that most 25-year-olds normally would do. Is that is that a badge yeah. of honor, something that you kind of enjoyed? Like, I can I can be the guy at my age now. I can real like, this is, uh, I have- Well, I, I, was, have well, I was, I mean, there's a little boy in me that longs to do action sequences. Actually, and particularly this kind of, more period, I mean, like with the sword fight, ah, oh, I love, you know, I love stage fighting when I was younger and I've always loved, now when I did Hamlet, I love, the duel in the Hamlet that I did was directed by Bill Hobbs, one of the great fight directors, sword fighting directors ever. He did all the sword fights for Ridley Scott's, the du duelists. Sure. He's got a great list of credits. So to be directed by uh, Bill Hobbs was fantastic. And I love those old films where those actors from the 30s and 40s could really fight. I mean, there's no stunt. There's Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone, Tyrone Power. Amazing. And um, I can't claim to have their skill, but I definitely loved rehearsing that sword fight. And so, um, yeah, no, it was fun. It was fun. I got to do stuff that I didn't, didn't expect to be asked to do at my age. Do you, do you take a certain pride, as much pride after completing like a physical scene like that as like a dialogue heavy scene? Is it, is it a different sort of pride? Yeah, no, absolutely. There is. And there was a great, very committed, dedicated stunt team directed, sadly, by the uh, Brad Allen, who's now um, sadly passed. Oh, yes. Yeah. He died last earlier this year, but he was a, a lovely man. He was de dedicated to real realizing Matthew's vision in terms of action sequences, very, very fastidiously perfectionist about every single shot. And, and the gratification was Brad saying, you know, a bit like those teachers at school who were a bit scary, but you wanted them to say, well done. And um, Brad had that effect. He wasn't scary, but he was intense. So when he gave, yeah, good job, that was good. It, right. it felt like high praise. Um, what about, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was... What about the satisfaction in there have been certain kinds of films in your career where I would imagine seeing the finished product is uh, must be fascinating because you can you can read it on the page. You can talk to Matthew, but 
until you see something like this put together with the editing and the sound and the music, much like the Harry Potter films, I'm sure they look great on set, but like, again, it is a tapestry. It is a filmmaker's medium for these kinds of films in particular. Is there something that that awakens inside of you when you see the finished product uh, for the first time in a film like The King's Man or a Harry Potter film? Yeah, no, every time you see any film you've done, it's always interesting, terrifying, sometimes <laughs> gratifying, sometimes disappointing. Um, and also because it's so subjective, it's, you know, one's own face and stuff, then you kind of wrestle with all that stuff of watching yourself, which is complicated. But um, uh, so, yes, it's always with this. Um, I, I thought when I saw this, I thought Matthew has a real handle on this. Um, and I didn't usually you can if something isn't right or you don't like the way you're shot or the seat, you can just feel a little disturbance in your uh, inner being. Oh my God, this, but this was, this just felt, I couldn't know, I don't know how people, I just felt, no, this seems to flow. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know. Um, so, 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 so going back, if you'll indulge me a little bit, you alluded to this before about sort of your theater being the first love and something you were exposed to as a child. I mean, your parents were both in the arts. I know your mother was yeah. a novelist, your father, a photographer. Um, That's right. Were they the biggest influences in your life in terms of exposure to the arts? Do you remember how you kind of found um, your way? My mother, my father was a, definitely a supporter of everything I did, but my mother was a, a key inspiration. She would have introduced me to Shakespeare, to Hamlet, to poetry, to the theater. Um, actually, my sister joked with me, because I'm doing this T.S. Eliot, and so much of my love of T.S. Eliot comes from my mo mother's love of him and of poetry. So there I am in the West, I'm doing it now. I do the red carpet for The Kingsman, which is the kind of film my dad would have loved. He would have loved me playing that kind of stoic man of integrity, <laughs> decent, reluctant hero. And he would have loved all that stuff. And so my sister, she said, she said there you are going from what daddy would have liked to what our mum would have liked. Because I left the red carpet. I had to go literally go into the theatre and prepare Both for the sides. show. Amazing, yes. <laughs> it must have been, you know, fascinating. When I, looked, when I was doing the chronology of your career, um, you know, Schindler's List, of course, exploded and changed the course of your life. And if, if I'm re remembering it correctly or seeing the dates right, you suffered the loss of your, your mother right around, around I that did, time. I did, that's right. No, she died at the very end of 93. So we, Schindler's List was filmed in the spring of 93. And my mom sadly died at the very, very end, end of December 93. So it was a funny time. I mean, not funny, hilarious. I mean, it was odd and emotional and full of grief. But I mean, it was um, because there, there was Schindler's List getting such an extraordinary response. Um, and I was reeling from the loss of my, my mother at the time. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was bewildering because I didn't, I suppose, the, the, the sort of movement of focus on the film and the success when people being asked to fly here for this event and that, and prob probably not really having time. People say you need time to grieve. And I suppose I, I, I didn't, I mean, I, 
I found the time, but that then it was it was it was bewildering. I, I saw actually that I'm going to complete it. I started to watch just last night. There was a film you did just a few years later about your mom, one of your mother's novels, I believe. And it seems like that was a, a way per, perhaps of yes, reckoning a bit. Um, that's right. We did that. Um, I think it was in support of a, a last novel she wrote was posthumously published. Thanks to Liz Calder, who then ran Bloomsbury Books. And the path of the novel, seeing having a readership, was that Michael Ondaatje read it and Liz was his publisher. Wow. And she read it and wanted to do it. And so I think the film was made to support the publication of, of the novel called, called Blood Ties. Right. Um, I'm curious, you know, we talked about sort of like your, your, your theatrical career early on. And I would think kind of, you know, the path that, you know, the kind of parts you want, the kind of career you, you're, you're going to forge. And on the film side, once Schindler's List happens and Quiz Show happens, like, did you feel like you knew what kind of film career you wanted? Was there a clear path for you or was it sort of just figuring this out as I go? I'm just taking the best material. I'm going, oh my God. I mean, give me a sense of what your, your attitude was. Uh, well, it was, a, you know, I think for any actor who's lucky enough to be in a film that has that kind of success and to work with directors like Spielberg or Redford or their equivalent today, whoever they may be. And to have that, when the film business here, I'm, I'm suppose I'm talking about Hollywood or the LA based film business, when that looks at you favorably because of what you've been in, it's a tantalizing and, and also quite unnerving time because I had no points of reference. I had the films that I liked. I didn't know who, I just, you know, there's so much ignorance about, about who one should work with, what is a good film script. Um, you're not always, you know, you don't, you're, you're, you're a lot of scripts are sent to you. And of course you, you're flattered, your, your ego is massaged by lots of attention and meetings and lunches with exciting directors who want to work with you. And it's your, so um, it was quite, um, it wasn't unpleasant. It was just, if I look back now thinking, I thought, oh, that, that young man was a bit bewildered. He was sort of where, where to, you know, how do you hold on to your truth? Whatever that is. Right. Well, cause um, in theater again, I'm going to go Shakespeare and Pinter and I'm going to follow the greats. And, but in film, it's just sort yeah. of a little more amorphous of what is a film career for a 30 year old man with your experience. It must've been, cause like it, it occurs to me like today, given that kind of success, you would be Dr. Strange today. Like you would have been plucked out, Marvel would have sucked you in and you would be doing Marvel film after Marvel film. And that might be nice, but that would be a different path, a different life. Well, I think I made choices that surprised people. I think The English Patient was, was I'm, I'm very proud of that film. I'm working with a great mind, Anthony Minghella with great actors, um, Willem Dafoe, Juliette Binoche, Kristen Scott Thomas and Saul Zantz behind it. So that felt definitely of something of worth, of, of value, a great emotional scope, a filmically interesting proposition of different time zones and Anthony's intelligence and his way of working with everyone was, you know, was an extraordinary experience for everyone involved. Um, and that was recognized as an achievement as a film. But I think then I did Oscar and Lucinda, which is a quirky story, beautiful mm -hmm. story by Peter Carey, Gillian Armstrong directing. And I remember that it didn't, it didn't 
have the crazier response. It had a sort of respectful response, but it wasn't a huge hit at all. Um, but I, I, but I, but that, but I, what I would remember is I wanted to play that part. I, I believed it was about love and faith and the sort of the, gam the, the gambling at the center of it is about choices in life and how you take a risk on something. And so there's, there's quite a complex idea at the heart of the story. And um, I love this character, Oscar Hopkins, but he's very, he's quirky, he's geeky. And, you know, I followed the descriptions with my hair dyed red. And, and that was all where I had the chance to work with great Kate Blanchett opposite yeah. me uh, as Lucinda. But I remember feeling, I remember an interview with the Hollywood, Hollywood Foreign Press and why did you, it was like, why are you doing that? As if I had made a reverse choice. Um, but in retrospect, so then you, yeah. No, but you, you, but you encounter, but, but the thing is, I've always, I've never been, I've never regretted something I've made a choice because I believed in the material, I've believed in what it was about and who knows what a film can happen. I've always thought there were one or two choices, which I won't go into where I've gone. I've did that slightly for the wrong reasons. Like, right. is that a good career move or will I be seen in this light? And those feel like not, they seem like a kind of calculated choice. Whereas sometimes the ingredients just feel great, just feel right. And you go with your gut and you don't know how it's going to come out, but you go something in here says like the, the bigger splash of film I did with Luca mm. Guadagnino. I love that part, not a part I get asked to play, and that sort of outrageous, loud, brash, kind of willful record producer, Harry, but alongside Tilda Swinton and um, uh, Matthias Reinhardt. And um, but I love Luca's world and his intelligence. And, and so I, I met Luca and I read the script that, um, that felt, and I, you know, it did okay, but I, that felt like a, everything felt aligned in a good way. Well, it does feel like you've devoted your, much of your film career to something that is sadly diminishing more and more, which is the adult drama, which is like, I think, you know, The End of the Affair is another film we could mention that I feel like not many people think back to, but it was a great Neil Jordan film at the time, Constant Gardner. These are just like, Look, in retrospect, you have you've worked with the greats and you've devoted yourself to the, the right material. So there, there should be no second guessing. Um, I'm curious. I want, oh, here's one random one that just came up, came up when I was reading up on you. There was talk, talk about a fork in the road, that Joel Schumacher had you in mind potentially to play Batman at one point. Do you remember any I conversation? I no, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. No, I mean, I think when these... I've never really, I mean, I, yeah. I suppose I grew up liking the, what you call the adult dramas. Yeah. Um, and, and have, and I, I still like them. I think what's, what's a little, um, I think because of the, the, the huge success of streaming ser series, you know, TV streaming series that go on and on and on, yeah. that the, what's being eroded is the belief in or the, you know, or the commercial viability of the film, the adult film that's two hours long that deals with drama. It can be, it can be you know, a film noir, it can be a romance, it can be something like The End of the Affair. It doesn't have to be a literary base to it, but those sorts of, those are the films that I grew up with. And my awareness of film at all that I like was those kinds of films, you know. Yeah. Um, 
you mentioned Harold Pinter, but he did some great screenplays like The Servant and Accident and French Lieutenant's Woman. Um, so those, you know, that, that kind of film that seems to be, uh, I, think, I think, you know, Netflix are making those kinds of films, but... But they just I happen to be 10 hours. The, yeah. What? <laughs> they just happen to be 10 hours long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, yeah, so or they are, they're, they're for street. I mean, where, where are we with the cinema, I suppose, you know, going? Um, what's going to happen to the, the, the cinema experience? It is the, the existential question for folks like us that have devoted our lives to cinema. And I don't know if we have the answers quite yet. Um, Harry Potter always comes up as it should. You are to a generation, to future generations will always be Voldemort. Um, when last we spoke, I remember you said that there was some initial trepidation on your part. What was, what was, what was the key thing you were worried about going into something like that? And how was it? Well, I didn't, again, it was ignorance. I didn't, I hadn't read the books. I was aware of the first two films being these young children and wizards, and it felt like I hadn't invested in it, or I hadn't been curious about it. Um, possibly, in my ignorance, a bit dismissive. And then a very great um, casting director called Mary Selway, sadly, also no longer with us, but someone who had been a big part of my early career and, um, and a, a woman I profoundly respected at the time, not at all well, was casting the film of the, the fourth, I think, Harry Potter film in which Voldemort is reborn out of the cauldron. Up until then, he'd just been seen, I think, as a digital animated figure coming out of someone's head. So no actor had yet played Voldemort. And I, I, I was, because I was not invested in the series or the, the, the involvement of J.K. Rowling's world, I, I had no clue as to how important Voldemort was. There was a combination of factors. It was Mary being incredibly insistent. And when Mary was insistent, you sort of listened. And then the, my sister, my sister Martha, who has three, has three children who were then right at that age, maybe sort of, you know, 11, 10, 7. I think I said, I don't know, I've been asked to do this, Voldemort, what do you think? She went, what? What? You've got to do it. You're crazy, crazy. So then I kind of woke up, I think. Um, and, then, and then I got into it, what it meant in the J.K. Rowling universe and the world, and that he was this extreme satanic figure, snake-like evil element. Um, and then I went, I went for it, you know, I went for it and then got completely into it and loved it. <laughs> Certainly did. <laughs> Have you seen um, Cursed Child on stage? And I mean, it feels inevitable at some point that they will turn that into a film. And indeed, Voldemort does factor in. Is that an intriguing proposition to you? I have to confess, I've not seen it on stage. So, um, but I would be up for revisiting Voldemort for sure, for sure. Um, I recently just did a Q&A with um, Daniel Craig and Carrie Fukunaga about No Time to Die. Quite a, a big swing of a final uh, film for Daniel mm -hmm. in that series. Um, was that a no-brainer? I assume it was it Sam Mendes that came to you or Robert Broccoli? Was that something that was an easy yes? Well, it was funny one because actually a while back, Barbara Broccoli talked to me once about possibly playing Bond. Um, and that didn't happen. But Sam Mendes, as we know, directed uh, Skyfall. And the pitch was very attractive at the time. That, you know, 
M, Judy Dench M dies and you're set up as the next M. And it was a, and I thought, great. I love, <laughs> I also love Daniel's bond. Yeah. And I just respected Sam's intelligence and what the, the approach to it and the way he, what he was doing with it. I thought it was, Miss Skyfall was a great script. It was great. Um, Although I think I can say now that I had to fight off an attempt by Sam in, in uh, Spectre to make M. I said, I don't want to play M. And then you turn around and make him the bad guy. M is never the bad guy. Oh, wow. He was going to be on the so other I side. Had to, I had yeah. to have some pretty intense discussions with Sam saying, this is not flying with me. <laughs> M isn't. <laughs> uh, so wait, was he in league I, with Blofeld? Was he? Was that? Was yeah, that yeah, no. It was like yes, he was Blofeld or something. But um, that was uh, <laughs> that wasn't that was a that was a red line for me. This is not what I signed up for. This is not uh, what yeah, you sold yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, was that an intriguing proposition way back when when you talked to Barbara about potentially even playing Bond? I mean, again, just that the kid in you must have been intrigued by that notion. Yes, I'm not sure I'd have been very good as Bond. I mean, I would love, I liked the books a lot when I was in my teens. I liked the films, particularly the earlier Connery films. I had a teenage obsession with Bond. And so when that day came, of course I was flattered, but I, I still, I mean, I think they tried to do this up to a point when Daniel came into the franchise. I mean, they got, went back to Casino Royale and they kind of honored right. I mean, because of the way the films evolved through the 80s and 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they got kind of fun, bizarre. I mean, right. you know, Roger Moore was great entertainment, and, but they got further and further from the quite dark, slightly acidic, dangerous sort of nocturnal world of the books and a kind of flinty, difficult slightly elitist mindset of Bond and kind of, I mean, highly individual and kind of, you know, he had his views, he's quite opinionated. He's, as he had Fleming's lots of ways, but you know, he would probably be canceled a million times over the Bond <laughs> of the books. Now. That's but, true. Yeah. But I liked what I imagined that there could be a Bond, a filmic world, which would be set right in the 50s that you would do Casino Royale right in the 50s and it would be dark but it would be really tough and that you know you would be quite brave with the violence in it and you would be quite unapologetic about the sex in it so it'd be quite quite tough you know it'd be quite grown up and like the books are i mean they're, well they're not well, are they grown up maybe not <laughs> but, <laughs> but i get they have to a your kind point. of they yes. have a steely they have a steely kind of i mean i think they offend some people because they are and now in the current climate, they probably wouldn't fly at all. But I mean, that's what I remember thinking, oh, could the Bond films go down this noirish, almost even a black and white world? But I don't, <laughs> I don't think that was, um, anyway, you know, I think there's, I think it's not for me to say, but I think, I think, I think early on, I think what I read about when Cubby Broccoli bought the options on the bond the first thing they addressed was the kind of he didn't have much sense of humor they wanted to make him attractive and kind of wry and this thing and i think they did quite rightly they've made him 
you know, we like Bond's humor and his kind of ironic detachment and there's a, there's a wit. And I think they had to find something that, that women and men had to like. Um, and that's, of course, as, as our taste has changed and our, what we find acceptable has changed. So of course, and the Bond franchise reflects intelligently. And I think that's the sort of brilliant way that Barbara um, and Michael have managed it is they've got, you know, really strong actors to play Bond. And Daniel, I think, is, you know, masterful in the way he's inhabited that. And they've kept a, like, alert to the world in which the franchise has to, to exist. And I think probably the period Bond that I have in mind is not, <laughs> I'd watch not it for the fly. record. <laughs> it's always a pleasure, sir. I, I really appreciate the time today. As I said, I'm a fan of yours and Matthew Vaughn and the combination in The Kingsman uh, certainly delivers. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back on the stage here in the States, in New York, one of these days as Thank well. You. Great talking to you. Thank you. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>